Hurricane Joaquin defied all weather forecasts and standard Atlantic Basin uh, hurricane tracking predictions by traveling southwest. As various updates were received by the captain on board El Faro, he still maintained his direct course to San Juan. And that was their normal route. And the captain's southern deviation ultimately led the El Faro directly into Hurricane Joaquin. El Faro began taking on, uh, encountering heavy seas and winds associated with the outer bands of Hurricane Joaquin. And on October 1st, El Faro took a long, a prolonged starboard list, so much so that they intermittently began to take on water. They began taking water into the interior of the ship. By 5.30 in the morning, flooding was identified in one of the large cargo holds of the vessel. And at the same time, El Faro engineers were on board struggling to maintain propulsion as the list and motion of the vessel increased. By 7.30, by 7.20, at 7.29 a.m., they recorded, on the black box, they record exactly what time, at 7.29 a.m., without propulsion, uncontrolled flooding, the captain aborted, ordered abandoned ship. The vessel at that time was near the eye of Hurricane Joaquin, which had strengthened to a Category 3 storm. One minute later, the captain is calling out, the bow is down. The bow is down, and the National Hurricane Center found that at 8 a.m., Joaquin was a Category 4 storm with sustained winds of 115 knots. Debris from El Faro was found 15,400 feet below sea level. That's almost three miles down. Altogether, 33 souls were lost at sea and presumably deceased. I've spent many months at myself at sea. I remember my first time I stepped foot on a ship, I spent six months without seeing land. We were out in the North Atlantic. And I know there's other people in this room that are involved in the maritime industry. So this event has had a, had a, a unique impact and an impact to me and the people I work with. Because this is a very real threat to many people. If you have your Bibles with me, turn with me in the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is divided into five sections of 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. It's five books of the law or five books of Moses, 12 books of history. There are five books of uh, poetry. Then there are the five major prophets and the five minor prophets. Jonah is one of those minor prophets and it can be found between the book of Obadiah and Micah. Now the minor prophets aren't minor because of, of, of their message, because of the significance of their message, or, or any other reason other than the, the length of their books are just so much shorter. Some of the books are only one chapter, probably just one page in your Bible. This morning we're beginning a four-week study in the book of Jonah. And I'm sure most of you have heard of Jonah. You see, Jonah is almost completely written in narrative. And most kids in Sunday school will have studied it and know about it. And they'll know that a fish swallowed Jonah when he should have gone to Nineveh. But Jonah isn't just a children's story. You know, those, those children's stories are so common. You know, you think about the movies that, that we've seen from, whether it's the Tales movie or the books with the 
characters that they conjure up and put into those books, the images that you have, Jonah is not a children's story. The Bible is often referred to as an old book. But it's not an old book. The Bible is a very modern book. It was just written a long time ago. And the study of Jonah is going to be very important in our Christian lives today. It's going to talk about and touch on some very relevant topics to us. We're going to see social issues that are in the news today like racism in the book of Jonah. In Jonah, we're going to gain an understanding of evangelism and how Jesus' words will be carried out. In Jonah, at the core, is sin and the heart issue. And what that heart issue says about people today is written throughout the book of Jonah. And my favorite part about the book of Jonah is that despite all of the wrongdoings that we see in Jonah, when Jesus was asked by the scribes and Pharisees to show them a sign, Jesus pointed to Jonah, a clear indication, a clear symbol of his death, burial, and resurrection by which he wrought the salvation of the world. You know, people today are always looking for a sign, aren't they? They're always asking for more. Jesus fed thousands. He walked on water. He calmed stormy seas. He raised the dead, and people still seek a sign. When he was on the cross, they asked for a sign, and they said, Come down from the cross that we may see and believe and thank the Lord that he did not come down off that cross. Because if he had, we would be in a very sad state today. Some people continue to ask for a sign today, even though Jesus was raised from the dead and he walked on the earth for 40 days thereafter. Even after he ascended to heaven, people refused to believe and they rejected Jesus. People are always asking, always seeking, always trying to learn, but they're never coming to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said that the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah was on the earth when he said those words. So with that as an introduction, let's read Jonah chapter 1 together. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise! Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? 
what is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So my son Josh had a, has a habit of thinking up jokes and so he asked me this morning he says why did Jonah flee to the ocean because he had a fishy feeling that it was calling him (laughs) so to help us better understand Jonah the man I want to spend a few minutes looking at two subjects that I'm sure you're all very interested in history and geography so let's start with geography In 930 BC, the nation of Israel was divided into two parts after the death of Solomon. The nation of Judah occupied to the land of the south. You can see it there in purple. And and Jerusalem was its capital. The nation of Israel occupied the land to the north. And they were the ten northern tribes. And they had Samaria as their capital. And during the centuries that followed, the Lord would send prophets to each of these two nations. Jonah was a prophet to the nation of Israel, as we read about in 2 Kings chapter 14. In the port city of Joppa, you see Joppa there, it's actually in Philistine territory. And that is where Jonah caught the ship headed to Tarshish. It's hard to say where exactly modern-day Tarshish was, but most scholars believe, modern-day scholars believe, that Tarshish was in Spain, kind of near the, the modern-day Gibraltar, just, uh, just to the west. And as the crow flies, it's about 2,500 miles from Joppa. This was as far as you could go in the ancient world in that day because the Atlantic Ocean wouldn't be crossed for another 2,000 years or so. Nineveh was in the other direction, and it was becoming the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And it was just a few decades away from being a world power. This city was about 550 miles northeast of Joppa. And if you want to look at something for comparison, this is a a, a map of the United States. And you can see Tom's River there. And about 2,500 miles from Tom's River is San Francisco. And if you want to go to Charleston, South Carolina, you're going to travel about... 550 miles so it give you a frame of reference what that distance is like but consider for a moment how this story is a clear demonstration of how people think today 
and how they thought then. Because in 2 Kings 18, we read about the Rabshikeh who came from Assyria to conquer Jerusalem. Now the Rabshikeh had boasted about conquering these other lands and those other gods. You see, the problem then, like, people, like the problem today, is that people like to put God in a box. They like to think that God is regional, that he's only in part of their lives. They, don't, they, they like to compartmentalize the Lord as if what is required of them is only necessary on one day of the week. They continue living out the rest of the week as they please, living in sin as their hearts desire. Now today, we may not just bind God into geographic jurisdictions, but people certainly do with different aspects of their lives. When they're at work, they behave one way. And when they're with friends, they act another way. Or, you know people like this. They surprise you when you learn more about them in different situations. Well, what about you? When people look at you, do they see a Christian no matter what your circumstances? Would they be surprised to learn that you are a Christian because of the way you act and carry yourself around them? Are you a light in every aspect of your life? From the breakfast table in the morning, to your commute to work, to your time with friends and co-workers and children, to your commute home from work, to your entrance back home, are you kicking the dog when you come back in or are you showing the love of Christ? From your interactions with your neighbors and what about your weekend activities? What are they filled with? Or to put it in a more nautical context since we're talking about Jonah, if you were to step foot on a ship full of strangers, would all of your shipmates be shocked to learn that you are a Christian or do they just see another sailor? We should be living our lives for the Lord no matter where we are. David wrote in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me, for you know, that when I, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar, and you search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in. Bind me and before, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed into Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, the night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Live a life pleasing to the Lord, just as Peter wrote, Dear friends, I warn you, as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your flesh, against your souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even then, if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Jeroboam II reigned in Israel from 
793 B.C. to 753 B.C. with Samaria as his capital. We read in 2 Kings that during his reign is when Jonah prophesied. And Jonah prophesied that Jeroboam would be pushing out his enemies. This was the most prosperous time for the northern kingdom because Jeroboam was extremely successful in battle. They pushed out their enemies. In fact, this map doesn't show that when Israel pushed out, they pushed out all the way out to Damascus. One of those other weaker nations that would have been an enemy with the Israel at that time were the Assyrians. They weren't very powerful, but they were enemies. I mentioned Rabshakeh earlier and Sennacherib who has uh, extra biblical references to Israel and the attacks on Jerusalem. They were going to come from Assyria and Nineveh was going to be their capital. And in 733 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel would actually be conquered by the Assyrians. You see, in 722 BC, the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes, the tribes that we call the lost tribes of Israel, well, they're going to be carried away by Sargon II. We can read about this in Sargon's records. He carried away in his records 27,290 Israelites. You can see there they, they transpose, transpose them out using the blue line into other lands. But the black line shows that he took people from other nations, kind of from the uh, Medes, and brought them in and resettled them into Samaria. Those other people, those other nations would mix with the Israelites that were remaining. They would kind of become a, a half-breed. And later on, we would simply call them Samaritans. This was the nation, this Assyrian empire, this, these Ninevites, were who God told Jonah to go and preach to. You know, some of the hardest things that we have to do in our lives involves our enemies, or at least those that we think are our enemies. Jesus told us to love our enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. I don't know about you, but I have a difficult time stopping my thoughts when I'm on the road and addressing my bad attitude to those other drivers out there. Sometimes those other drivers are my enemies in my own mind. And we end up competing to get to the next red light. You know, who is it for you? Is it that neighbor that cuts into your lawn when they're mowing so that their lawn looks pretty and yours gets cut awkwardly? Or perhaps for you, it's that woman at work who's constantly undermining your efforts to your boss to make herself feel better or look better. Or is it that customer who's consistently taking advantage of you and not paying you for what is honorable and fair? It's one thing to stand here and say to you to love your enemies, to do good to those who hate you, to pray for the, to bless those who curse you, and to pray for those who spitefully use you. And I can't stand here and tell you that I've mastered that. I can't tell you that I am any good at those things, but I can tell you that the one who uttered those words, the man who said those things, he not only demonstrated those things, he took them to the grave with him. Literally took him to the grave with him. When you think about it, he poured out his love for his enemies because we were once enemies with the Lord. And how in a time when we hated him the most and crucified him, he did good to us. 
how Jesus prayed on the cross that his Father would forgive us as we, in our sin, cursed him. We are blessed every day because we are saved by faith or saved by grace through faith, even though we spitefully used him and many blessings he has given us. Praise the Lord that he didn't destroy us. You know, a major contributor to, to, to Jonah's thinking in this time is racism. Remember that Nineveh was a city in Assyria. They were enemies with Israel. People back then are much like people today. They hate one another just because of who they are. Think about it. The people in Iran hate the people in Iraq. The people in Syria hate the Kurds and, and the Palestinians hate the Jews. And if you look at it, you know, I was over in, in, in uh, the Middle East one time. And when I was there, I spoke to a, a, a fellow from the UAE, United Arab Emirates. And while I was talking with him, I mistakenly said something about the Persian Gulf. And he said, wait a minute, it's not the Persian Gulf. When you're on this side, it's the Gulf of Arabia. It's the Arabian Gulf. If you're over in Iran, it's the Persian Gulf. So depending on where you are, they hold that very tightly and they have an intense hatred for one another. And I think back to my, my associations with many people that have been in Africa. There's a, a, a dear man by the name of Mert Wolcott that Russ knows very well. He talks about the different tribes in the Congo that have a hatred, extreme hatred and racism for one another just because they're from another tribe. You and I might not notice differences between them, but they notice them between themselves and they hate each other and that prevailing thought should never, ever drive any Christian's thinking or actions. If you need some expiring examples of Christians who were forerunners for social change, you don't have to go very far. The leading contributors to ending slavery in Great Britain and the United States were Christians like William Wilberforce. You see, William Wilberforce, he got saved in 1785. And from that time, he, his eyes were opened to the wrong that was inherent in racism and slavery. He spent the remaining years of his life seeking to reform British laws. And I would encourage you that if you haven't seen the movie or read the book about Amazing Grace, about William Wilberforce, find it, watch it. Here in America, evangelical Christians were the forefront of the anti-slavery movement. There's a story of one Congregationalist pastor who, who was urging his parishioners to gradually eliminate slavery. Well, one person that sat in that audience that listened to him was William Lloyd Garrison, and he asked that pastor if at the same time he would urge his parishioners to gradually eliminate sin in their lives. He pushed the issue to not just demand change and not let it be a gradual thing. It should not be there at all. So get rid of it. The efforts of the Underground Railroad and those believers who assisted slaves in getting north to freedom were pioneers in tearing down racial divides. While no longer slaves, segregation then dominated the oppression of black women and men here in America, and it was the Christians who spurred on the civil rights movement. I enjoy reading and, and listening to Martin Luther King Jr.'s 
speeches and sermons. And he cited the Bible over and over and over again. And he stated that his Bible-based beliefs and his Christian life was the foundation for campaigning against segregation. Listen to it. Find out how often he quotes the scriptures such as Amos and the words of the Lord Jesus. Since 1980s, since the 1980s, the unwritten rule in baseball was that no integration would occur with black baseball players and white baseball players. A Christian with deeply held beliefs that all people should be treated equally, Branch Rickey was spurred on to do something about segregation and racism in his own line of work, professional baseball. And so when he... He was inspired because he was at a uh, traveling game when he was with Ohio Wesleyan University. And one of the black ball players on that team was denied a room when they were traveling. And it so infuriated Ricky that later he recalled that incident and said, I may not be able to say, do something about racism in every field, but I can certainly do something about it in baseball. The Brooklyn Dodgers hired Branch Ricky as their president and general manager in 1942 and Ricky found and signed a specific 26 year old second baseman by the name of Jackie Robinson thus breaking the color barrier in America's favorite pastime and Ricky was just not just concerned about segregation and integration of black people and white people but of all people he was also the first to hire and to to promote Hispanic superstars such as Roberto Clemente whom he signed with the Pittsburgh Pirates when he moved to their organization and years later as I learned more about Branch Rickey I found that he would speak at different events when he would speak at these events he would encourage people using illustrations from the Bible he had collapsed one night in the middle of a speech and he was about he had just told a story about physical courage and in that physical courage he was going to transition and relate a bible story something that was more and as he opened up he said now i'm going to tell you a story from the bible about spiritual courage he collapsed and never spoke again after that, and he died just 11 days shy of his 84th birthday. But that courage that he spoke of, that spiritual courage, that was to inspire Christians to action. We are to do something. Racism was an issue in, the, in America 70 years ago when men and women were treated unfairly and segregated. It was an issue 150 years ago when slavery was here in America. And it was an issue, racism was an issue, a serious issue in Jonah's day when he fled the command of the Lord to go and preach to Nineveh. Racism was prevalent in Jesus' day too. And we know racism is prevalent in America today. We see it in the news. As Christians, we need to ask ourselves, are we taking a stand against racism here in America? Or are we just standing by and keeping silent, watching it as it happens? Do we have the spiritual courage to stand up and look beyond the differences between people just as God does and see people with the eyes of Christ? Hallelujah. In probably one of the most 
ethnically contentious areas of Palestine in his day, Jesus spoke with a Samaritan woman. This was a huge deal to the Jews of that time. In John chapter 4, the woman at the well is surprised to learn that Jesus is speaking to her. Listen to what she says. She says that our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. She says, you Jews. It was known that it was a contentious issue. Jesus looked beyond the social norms, the racial interaction that he had with all people was apparent that he loved them. Jesus looks beyond the superficial layers, the social norms, to point out that we are spirits to the core, and when we worship, we worship in spirit and truth. When Jesus wanted to make a point about who your neighbor was, who did he point to? A certain lawyer asked him, who is my neighbor? Jesus said, a certain Samaritan. A certain Samaritan was his illustration. And not only were the Samaritans hated by the Jews, the Jews wouldn't even call them by name. The Jews simply called them dogs. Remember that the Samaritans were a mix of these people that were brought in from other lands to integrate with Israelites. Who was Jonah supposed to preach to? Those Ninevites. That's who he was supposed to go to. Paul wrote to the Galatians, and he reiterates the need to abolish this racial thinking in the Christian mind by saying, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. Herman Melville wrote that the story of Jonah is a lesson for sinful men and women because it is the story of sin, hard-heartedness, the swift punishment, repentance, prayers, and finally deliverance and joy. As with all sinners among men, the sin of Jonah was willful disobedience of the command of God. Don't worry about what that command was for now. It was a hard command for Jonah. But all the things that God would have us do would be hard for us. Remember that. If we are to obey God, we must disobey ourselves. And it is in this disobeying of ourselves that it becomes the hardest in obeying God. I want you to imagine with me for a minute. Let's eavesdrop on this scene. With this sin of disobedience on him, Jonah still further defies God by seeking to flee from him. He thinks that a ship made by men will carry him into countries where God does not reign, and he should know better than that. Jonah skulks about the docks of Joppa and seeks a ship that's bound for Tarshish. This was as far by water as Jonah could have sailed in those ancient days. Miserable man. Oh, contemptible and worthy of all scorn. With a slouched hat, a guilty eye, skulking from his God, prowling among the shipping like a vile burglar, hastening to cross the seas. So disordered, self-condemning is his look that had there been policemen in that day, they would have arrested him on a mere suspicion that he had done something wrong if he had stepped foot on one of those ships. 
Look how plainly he is a fugitive. He's got no bags, not a carry-on, not an iPad. He's got no friends coming with him to see him off. At last, after much searching, he finds that the ship that he's looking for, the one set for Tarshish, is receiving the last of her items. He steps on board, looking to see its captain. The sailors all stop and eye this man as he steps on board, seeking the captain. Jonah sees this, but in vain he tries to look at ease and confident. In vain he attempts to raise a smile. Strong intuitions about the man assure the sailors that he cannot be innocent. In their gruesome but still serious way, one whispers to another, Hey Jack, he's robbed that widow. Or, Hey Joe, do you recognize him? From... He's probably on that wanted poster that we saw back in town. Hey Harry pal, I guess he's that rapist that broke out of jail in Gaza or, or one of the missing murderers from Bethel. One of the men runs down to the light post. He's looking at the poster, the wanted poster, and he's looking back and forth at Jonah as he reads the description. The other men, the other sailors, begin crouching around Jonah, getting closer, waiting for the sign that they can apprehend Jonah. Jonah trembles. But as he tries to make the best of it, the man down at the post shakes his head after finishing reading that description of the fugitive and they let Jonah pass. Jonah, Jonah descends down into the cabin to see the captain. Who's there, cries the captain, busily at his desk, hurriedly finishing his customs paperwork. Who's there? Oh, that harmless question must have mangled Jonah. For the instant, you can see he's almost ready to turn and flee again. But he rallies. I seek passage in your ships to Tarshish. How soon do you sail? So far, the busy captain hasn't looked up. He stays focused at his desk. But no sooner does he hear that hollow voice does he look up with a scrutinizing glance. We sail with the next coming tide, he slowly answers, eyeing Jonah intently. No sooner, sir? Soon enough for any honest man that wants to go as a passenger, another stab at Jonah. But he quickly changes the subject. I'd like to sail with you. The cost to pay, how much is it? I'll pay now. Notice that at this point, Jonah pays the full fare. Which way to the stateroom, sir? I'm very tired. I've been traveling. I'd like to get some sleep. You look like it. Stateroom is back aft. Jonah, clothes still dusty from his journey from Israel, stumbles into his stateroom. He throws himself on the bed that's in his stateroom and the ceiling isn't very far from his forehead. The air feels close and stuffy and he gasps. There's no window, no window in his stateroom. He doesn't have that luxury because his room is below the waterline. Screwed to the ceiling is a, is a single lamp and it, 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 it swings slightly in Jonah's cabin. 
Shadows are cast by the flame of the lamp and it dances around. The ship is heeling towards the wharf as, as the sailors list the last bit of cargo hoisted on board the ship. But the flame maintains an almost upright position, almost as if it's accusing Jonah of what he's done wrong, of his sin of disobedience. And Jonah goes over and quenches that, fl- quenches that flame. Darkness falls on his room. Wrestling with his own conscience, Jonah's misery finally drowns him to sleep. The tide comes in. The ship casts off her ropes and she glides out to sea without a care. A dreadful storm comes on the ship and the ship is about to break. The bosun calls for all hands to lighten her load. Boxes and bales and jars are being thrown overboard. Men are yelling and the planks are thundering right overhead with trampling feet. And Jonah is sleeping his hideous sleep. The tumult he doesn't know about. He sees no black sky. He sees no raging sea. The frightened captain bursts into Jonah's room, shakes him awake. What do you mean, sleeper? Rise up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Startled from his lethargy and the cry of the captain, Jonah staggers to his feet and stumbles to deck. Imagine those sailors on the El Faro as their ship was tossed to and fro and ultimately sunk where the captain is there crying, the bow is down, the bow is down. What's running through their mind as they're about ready to meet their maker? The water crashes against the port side and the water reaches for Jonah. Wave after wave pounds the bow and, and leaps onto the deck. It sloshes around, but it can't find its way back into the sea. And so it just moves fore and aft as the waves toss the ship and pound at it. The mariners are thinking they're going to drown. Jonah's eyes look ahead. And as the ship rises up one wave, he sees the blackness overhead. The bow is pointing upward He can't even see the sea when he looks that way. But soon his face is towards the tormented deep. And that's all that he sees. And terrors upon terrors run shouting through his soul. In all his cringing attitudes, the God fugitive is now too plainly known. The sailors mark him for more and more certain that their suspicions about him were true. They put their suspicions to the test. They cast lots to see who caused this tempest. The lot falls on Jonah and they immediately pounce on him with questions. What is your occupation? Where did you come from? Your country? Your people? Not only are their questions answered, but Jonah answers the one question that they don't even ask. I'm a Hebrew, he cries, and I fear the Lord, the God who made the sea and the dry land. He should fear God. And from here on out, he makes a full confession. Rather than seeking mercy from God, Jonah cries out that he should be cast into the sea. For he knew that this great storm was upon them because of him. 
But the sailors mercifully try to save him and their ship and seek to row back to shore. And as they're trying to row back to shore, they find that it's useless. They find that it's all in vain. This indignant storm just howls louder as he tries, as they try to get back to shore. And they raise their hands to God and they lift up Jonah and throw him overboard like an anchor dropped at sea. The instant calmness of the sea confirms that their actions were right, that this indeed was the result of Jonah's disobedience. So what was Jonah's purpose? Jonah is often given a bad rap by preachers. They often speak poorly about Jonah and how he responded to God, but at least he knew the heart of God. You know, he knew that the heart of God was for the salvation of people. He knew that. Look, Jonah says so himself in chapter 4 where he recalls the conversation he had with the Lord when he was back in Israel. He says, listen, listen to what he says. He says, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Jonah was supposed to be an evangelist, one who would carry the word of the Lord to the people of Nineveh. He tried to escape from doing that. He tried to flee from the presence of the Lord, knowing full well that the Lord was the creator of heaven and earth, and that there was no place that he could flee from his presence. Motivated by a dislike, probably a hatred for people that he wanted to see destroyed Jonah disobeyed the command of God to go. We as Christians also have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to go. And it's not as hard as we may think it should be. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and said that he should preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. What does that look like today? Quite simply, it means that we should be living our lives for the Lord as Christians in every aspect of our life. Every aspect of our life. When Paul wrote to the Romans, he expressly told them that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Racism should have no part in the, no place in the heart and mind of a Christian. And even more so, Paul continues along this same line of thought. Just as we talked about here with Jonah. He says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring good, glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Look at the progression. Paul lays out a clear progression. The Lord desires all to be saved. Those who call upon him shall be saved. 
They can't call upon him until they believe. And they can't believe until they hear, and they can't hear without a preacher. And the preacher can't go until he is sent, and when he is sent, he is to share the word. So why should we go? Because the word of God needs to be heard to be believed. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Let's be like Jonah. Let's be like Jonah and understand that the heart of God is that no one should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But let's not be like Jonah and disobey God because of our own perceptions of other people, of what we think they should be like. Jesus was clear in Mark 16 when he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. This is what Christians are to do. Sometimes that means that we need to break down barriers to reach those in different social positions. Sometimes we need to break down walls that divide different races, and sometimes we simply need to break down and share the gospel. For those that don't know Jesus as their Savior, I want to take a minute and just let you know that you too can be saved. That you too have an opportunity today there were people that perished. 33 souls were lost at a time that they didn't expect it. The El Faro had made that trip back and forth to San Juan and Jacksonville dozens of times. And that one time, it went down unexpectedly. None of them expected it. We don't know when our life will end. But we do know that the Lord has given us an opportunity to come to know Him and to be saved. In June 2015, there was another event that took place. A Bible study was occurring, and there were about 13 people in that room, one of which was Dylan Roof. He was a 20-year-old, 21-year-old white supremacist who entered a church and sat down and for an hour he had prayer and Bible study with these wonderful believers. He went on to murder nine of those people. On July 9th of 2015, UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, who was then governor of South Carolina, she was signing a bill that would remove the Confederate battle flag from the grounds of the state capitol there in South Carolina. You see, the motivation for Dylan Roof was that he would spark on a racial war in this country by doing this. And he used the, the Confederate flag as part of his MO to get things going. That flag had been put up in 1961 in defiance of the Civil Rights Movement. It has been said that the removal of the Confederate flag of the battle flag was sparked by the terrible shootings of the Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston that killed nine people. And Governor Haley, who was who, then Governor Haley, who is a Christian and has been very public about her faith and about her conversion, she didn't see it that way. She saw that change in South Carolina as a result of the murders, but not as a result of the murders themselves, but as a result of the response of the families of those murderers, 
of those murdered. And on July 9th, when she signed that bill, she spoke about grace. You see, she said this. Listen carefully. She said nine people took someone who did not look like them or act like them. And with true love and faith and true acceptance, they sat and prayed with him for an hour. That love and faith was so strong that it brought grace to their families. It showed them how to forgive. So then we saw that action of forgiveness. And we saw the family show the world what true forgiveness and grace look like. That forgiveness and grace set off another action. That, act, uh, that an action of compassion by all people across the state of Cal uh, South Carolina and all across this country. You see, you take that compassion and that compassion motivated action and that action is that the Confederate flag is going to come off the state uh, off the grounds of the South Carolina State House. Governor Haley went on to then sign the, the bill using nine pens given to those families of the Emanuel Nine whose Christian acts of grace and truth have come right out of their faith and brought an honorable and peaceful end to a very deeply and socially divisive issue. As Christians, we are the heirs of the greatest force of good there has ever been in the world. We have in our hands the greatest engine of social change in history. And we, each one of us who know Jesus Christ, should be honored that the Lord himself has included us in his word spoken so long ago. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city that is set up on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light so shine up before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Thank you for listening. I'll close in prayer and then, Eric, I'll turn it over to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus, and the grace that he showed to us. We thank you for the opportunity we have to study Jonah and to learn from him what is good and right and to learn what your heart is for all people. And I pray that as we go out from here that our lives would ref reflect that which your son has set as an example for us. We thank you for this opportunity now to remember your son who was an example for us. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.